are made to be, I believe that we are made to be highly interdependent beings and we are put on this earth to help each other. And we are uniquely created to be of service to one another in different ways. But if we're neglecting ourselves, if we're always trying to be like the next person, if we're trying to be something other than who we are, then not only are we missing out on an opportunity to be of service to others in the way that they need, but we're we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And we rob others of an experience. Hey, I'm Kimberlyn. And I'm Dara. And we are in process. For a while, I've been more focused on how things feel versus how things look. I think I have been conditioned and I don't want to just say it's since childhood or blame it on family or anything. I just society, professional careers that I've had, you've been conditioned to focus on how things look and like make sure I look a certain way, make sure my hair is together, make sure I say the right thing. I don't say the wrong thing, like all of those things. And we just we in general have been taught to like neglect how it feels. It doesn't matter how it feels, you know, pay attention to how it looks. And we're still being conditioned to do that through like social media and other ways. And I've for the past like I don't know how long, but for the past year or so, I've been really slowly entering a space where I'm more concerned about how things feel versus how they look. And I don't mean how things feel emotionally. I mean, how things feel intuitively grounded in my body, um, how my body reacts to certain foods, how my body reacts to certain people, how my body um, reacts to just environments. Because there's sometimes there are things that I don't feel like doing, but I know that my body will appreciate it more. And I think that's so important. I think about when I was like in high school and college, I used to wear heels every day. And people that are close to me know I have terrible knees. Like my knee will just go out and I will collapse like out of nowhere. I got it from my dad. He got it from his dad. So I have bad knees. And I used to wear these sky high heels. And my mom would be like, Kim, those are too tall. And I'm like, girl, these are cute. What do you mean? <laughs> and I would just wear them all day, every day at school. The Buckling in the hall. <laughs> Listen, I would be at Spelman. All the girls know Spelman's campus. Afternoon, you need to be dressed to the nines. At 8 a.m., you can show up in your pajamas after 12 p.m. You need to be dressed up. So I always have my heels on, but I've always, and I've always had these terrible knee problems. After I had my, my last major knee injury, which was a meniscus tear back in 2015 or so, I was relegated to like flats. And this is when I was working in banking. I could only wear flats and that killed me because I used to be like dressed, okay, pumping it around the bank. <laughs> and I had to wear flats all the time. And that was annoying, but I knew that my knee needed, I had to be in flats. And so I got used to wearing flats for a year. Now I say that to say, and now like, I, I'm not feeling it. Like it's flats as a sneaker, even just in general, like being more concerned with how things feel versus how things look, because I know that if I don't feel good, then I'm going to be just distracted. If my, my hair can't be doing too much, my nails can't be doing too much, like it just has to feel good. And I think that's just that's just where I am and where I'm coming to. 
Well, let me just take a step back because I think for some of the listeners, a question that I get a lot from coaching clients is, how do you know what that inner intuition is? Like, what's the difference between that voice versus fear versus, you know, inner critics versus any number of other things or just indecision? Um, And how does one cultivate that for themselves and trust it? And so it sounds like you're really prioritizing what's on that side of the coin more than the image piece of it, which I I know you and I have talked about this before, but like we were both socialized by our families. Hey, mom, I know you're listening to (laughs) probably dad too, to care a lot about the external and the image and the way that it looked. Whereas it may have not been as solid of an invest. I'm being really sensitive to what I'm saying right now because I'm being self-conscious about them listening potentially, but that it, there often was less investment in the buffering up or the building up of that strength of the other side of like, what's actually going on intuitively. How does this really feel for you? Does this feel connected? Does this feel grounded? Um, so I'll just say for myself that I think everyone has a different way of connecting to that inner voice and that knowing, like we've talked in season one about like capital K knowing versus lowercase K knowing. So I'm calling this the capital K knowing and that there isn't a way to do it. But I do think that there are some like fundamental principles that are required for people to know what that voice is, to hear that voice, to tap into it. And a couple of things that come to mind are space, that there needs to be margin for it. And usually lack of force, I think, is really important too. And so I feel like things that you hear consistently when people say they have a knowing or they have a download or they had an aha moment, there's consistency that I hear and experience around I was doing something in a flow state, meaning I was working out. I was showering. I was cooking. I was meditating. I was praying. I was journaling. I was doing something that often wasn't in any way forcing or seeking. It wasn't a push or a pull, hoping for something to come out of it. It it reminds me of creative energy that oftentimes it's actually, this is a great connection point to like being a clear vessel and being empty that there needs to often be for that, quote, creative muse to come in a clearing house, that the you have to be the vessel for that thing to have the space to come. And then there needs to be enough space, enough stillness to actually hear it. And then there needs to be the step of the trusting to do something about it. And that doesn't have to look the same. I think especially in the you know time that we live in now, there's so much talk of that has to be meditation or that has to be this or that has to be that. And I think these are all great tools, but there's a lot of ways to do it. But I do think what is fairly non-negotiable is engendering some sort of practice or practices that allow for that. And in the Western capitalistic forward culture that we live in, we are constantly inundated with the message of hustle, be busy, busy is a badge of honor, get everything in there, but it doesn't at all champion that idea of space or margin or time for reflection or counterbalance. Like we, there's conversations obviously on work-life balance and things like that, but 
not a lot around like substantively why that's valuable or that it's not just like there's something I've been hearing a little bit about in like the ether recently, which I appreciate where it's like self-care in the way that we often talk about it or rest in the way I often talk about it is often almost a prescription to symptoms, meaning like we're treating or curing all the damage that we've built up and we're then trying to just like put a bandaid on it versus that preventative way of doing it of like, how do you lead from that place where that's the driving force? Much like you've said to me of, I need to sleep till this time. I need the space for this. I need the space for that. And then the other stuff comes next. So instead of it being the, I drive hard, I push, I do all these things. And then I figure out the space for the counterbalance I almost purporting the opposite, which I'm kind of hearing you say is the season that you're in of I lead with the quote self-care, which feels overused and everything else channels from there. Yeah, it's interesting because when you asked me about it earlier, I was like, I'm in a space where I just feel empty and I was processing with you because that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> I hadn't fit I haven't I hadn't been able to fully articulate, but as I'm listening to you talk, I'm in a space of feeling empty. I'm in a space of feel of um just showing up to the day, showing up to rooms, showing up to people with no expectations and it feels really great and I think the reason why I'm able to do that now is because I prioritize care of myself and making sure that I am rested, making sure that my needs are met before I go out and do what I need to do in the world. And I think that's so important because as a creative or as an artist, what I give birth to is so much bigger than myself. And I need to have that space and that room to carry that in my womb and to give birth to that. And so I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. And then I was thinking about, um, I th- I'm pretty sure it was Glennon Doyle when I was reading her memoir a while back. She talked about strengthening that knowing and learning to understand that voice. And she, I'm pretty sure it was her. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. But she talked about how like whenever she needed to make a decision she couldn't hear, she would like excuse herself from a meeting and go in a closet and just sit for like five minutes and just get really quiet. And I think that knowing and being able to understand and connect with that feeling and that capital K or whatever is like any other muscle that we have to exercise. And it takes us getting to know ourselves and getting to sit with ourselves. I don't think a lot of us, a lot of people know themselves um, because we have so much telling us who we are and what we like. TikTok tells you what you like. You don't even have to guess, you know, the ads on social media tell you like what you want to wear, which what's the next biggest thing, like the Stanley cups or whatever, like these things that you have to have. So we're in a new, a new age where like, we don't even know what we like for ourselves or what we want for ourselves. And so to your point about like things happening in the flow state, All of those areas that you mentioned are places where we are alone. We don't have our phones. Like people talk about, oh, I got this amazing idea in the shower. Yeah, no shit, because like you didn't have your phone there. You know what I mean? No distractions. You know, being empty and 
creating margin, like you said, and allowing for ideas to come, allowing for time for you to space for you to be able to think clearly is so important. But I think so many of us, and even when I work with my coaching clients, like I tell them, do not get up out of bed and run to the computer. Like that is so chaotic. Like I just, it's so, it's so crazy because what you do is you're putting yourself in a position where you're reacting to the day. Other people's priorities become your priority. Exactly. And you become a firefighter the whole day and Mm -hmm. you don't have to. And so I always like, if I have a meeting, I need to wake up at least an hour before or two hours before, Mm -hmm. like, because I won't, I can't just roll out of bed and, and talk to you. But I think being able to have that space to like clear your mind, clear the noise, clear the thoughts is really, really important. So this empty thing is interesting for a lot of reasons, but one, because really what I'm gathering is to feel empty in the way that you're talking about is actually to feel full or to allow yourself to be filled And again, like culturally, we're taught to avoid that. We're taught that that's a bad thing. We're taught, like you said, that it's not really good to know yourself. It's like, be this person. Like, this is what's acceptable. This is who you should be. So it can be really scary to be in that stillness or in those spaces of margin or to allow yourself to empty 5%, let alone all the way, because there's a real trust in that. And like for you, obviously, there's a faith-based piece to it where there's a faith-based trust. For others, they may or may not have something like that, which could help or harm just kind of depending on their vantage point. But I do think it's interesting how so much of this or many of our conversations take us to a place where it's counterculture in some ways. But but on the other hand, it feels so basic and so obvious of like, well, how are you supposed to know what's best for you if you're not spending time with you? How are you supposed to know what's, you know, how you can be of service in the world or what could be the next best step to take to move towards, you know, whatever you're to be doing. If all you're doing is filling your calendar back to back and shoving this in and that in, and you you can barely even sense your hunger feelings, let alone your intuition feelings. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it does bring bring me back, bring us back to the conversation we're having earlier while we were setting up. Dara got some pre-production tears from me, (laughs) (laughs) but we were talking about how um, I'm starting to notice how people are leaving at the height of their careers. And they're just leaving these very successful careers, whether they're CEOs or whether they're, you know, celebrity stylists or in industries, they're leaving at the height of their careers and saying, enough is enough. I'm exhausted. I just want to go off and paint for, and they don't even, they don't even say like paint for a year. It's not even a sabbatical. It's like, I'm done. I'm retiring. And I think it's this really interesting mass exodus. Um, And one thing I was telling you is like, I can relate as someone who has, change their lives several times, both personally and professionally, um, understanding when enough is enough. I'm not, I'm not feeling full anymore. And I think, you know, I've had the experience, I can relate to the experience where people are looking, looking at you like, why would you leave now? You're at the height. Everything's so successful. Everything's going so well. And it's like, but I, I'm, I'm empty, but a bad empty, right? Like I have nothing else to give to this. And I think it's necessary 
when you it, when you get to a point where you're like, I can't even hear. I don't even know how I'm bringing ser- how I'm being of service to this job to this industry. I'm looking for more, and I think um, I was telling Dara. I said one of the um, one of my superpowers is that I have the courage. I always have the courage to walk away. I'm not afraid to walk away from different things. And I think that sometimes you have to, and you have to get still and you have to get quiet in order to understand like what it is you're put on this earth to do. And it's so funny because I think we can be given our quote unquote assignments in the earth and we carry those out until it's time, until the time is run out. And you're like, okay, now what? But I think a lot of times and forgive me if I'm not making sense, but you'll make it make sense. (laughs) Um, A lot of times our ego is like, no, I need to keep holding on. I need to finish this. And it's like, well, this, this job was done five years ago, but you wanted to be here for 20 years and now (laughs) you're sitting here unhappy. And so I think it's so beautiful that people are, you know, leaving and understanding like, oh, all of my, and we've talked about this so many times before, like, Oh, like I thought that having this job, having this money, having this like this lifestyle would bring me success, but and bring me happiness, but it doesn't. Um, I went to an event last night with um, uh, two very prominent people in the fashion industry, and one person said one of the biggest pieces of advice that I took away, and a lot of people took away in the audience was he's like, when you're asking for things of God of the universe, be specific. Because he said, you know, I thought I wanted these things. I said I wanted to, I was going to be on the cover of the magazines and all this stuff. But like, I was unhappy. I was so, I had no peace. And so I think it's so cool that people are like, I don't care about this. Like, I I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to do here. I'm not going to be here. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My mind went so many places. And I was like, I don't even know where to pick back up on that. It's brave, I think first. And obviously there's like some amount of privilege for any of us to be able to be like, yeah, we can take pause. We can say, I'm not doing this anymore. So like baseline, there's that piece. And it's interesting on the specificity too, and on the definition of success piece, because we don't have to always, I don't think, know the specifics of what we want, but I do think it's important to bring it back to that idea of feeling of that's really the why piece. Like We're usually chasing things because we think it's going to bring us a feeling that it's going to make us experience life in a certain way. Typically, those things are positive emotions that we're seeking and we're chasing after. And I'm ever amazed at the distinction between the things that we think we know are in our best interest versus what it is that we really need, which is confusing because who's supposed to be the better arbiter of your own decisions than you But if you're not creating that environment that we're talking about to help yourself be a clearer channel to be that arbiter, it becomes very convoluted. And this is where it becomes very easy to be in the passenger seat of your own life, to go with the, oh, well, there's sunk cost fallacy. I've already invested this much. I might as well stay there. Or... I was raised to never quit or, you know, my, the mantra I was always told was quitters never win and winners never quit. And that's absolute bullshit. You know, plenty of major winners. We could list and list major figures over the course of history, quit a lot of things so they could get clearer and clearer in the direction that they were supposed to be going. And so I think 
one of the themes I'm hearing you say is that we have to be able to give ourselves permission to change our minds. And that that sometimes means it's change our minds around the logistical things that we're choosing to do. And in other cases, it's to change our minds about who we are, about what matters to us, about how we self-identify. And I mean that in the variety of ways. And that to me is super brave and in many cases counterculture. And it can be so jarring and upending, which you've experienced time and again in different capacities, because it's easier for people in and around our lives to contextualize us based on the information that they already know. So when you, you know, someone ends a relationship or a marriage, when they move, when they change industries, when they change their pronouns, when they, you know, anything that upends someone else's regularity that can be upending for them. And it also in some ways can be a mirror for them that is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. But all that to say, I just keep hearing undergirding everything you're saying, this vote for yourself, this you saying, I'm going to prioritize me because you recognize that in doing so, that's actually also in service to a greater good and that it may not be common in cases it may not be popular it may not be consistent, meaning it may change for any number of reasons, but that you continue to hone in and fine tune on those pieces that make the external work because they're driven from that internal first. And I think that kind of goes back to my previous comment where we've been acculturated to drive from the external and the internal second, where I think you and I have spent a lot of our adult lives honing in on, wow, there's so much more peace. There's so much more satisfaction. And there's so much more success in the ways that we've chosen to define that for ourselves when we focus on that internal first. And then we see that the external becomes a natural outgrowth of that. In terms of specificity. Oh my gosh, that word kicks <laughs> my ass. And in the spirit of changing your mind, I do think that I misspoke when I talked about when I said, you know, one of my the greatest takeaways from that conversation was being to be specific. I don't know if that was one of the greatest takeaways, but it was one of the interesting things that he said, because I do remember last night thinking like, oh, that's interesting, because I think about like how people women online, they'll have like this whole list of like what they want in a man and it. And I want to shake them every time because I'm like, if you would just throw that list out, you might open yourself up to a lot more in the world. And so I think like sometimes when we are specific, when we're too specific with our current knowledge and our current experience, Mm -hmm. we cut ourselves off from like even greater opportunities Mm -hmm. that come our way, which I think is key to being open and empty and just showing up and being open to like what the day has for you, what things have for you in store. And I add to that. Yeah. This reminds me of goal planning. So, you know, a lot of people have their ritual at the beginning of the calendar year and it just becomes this natural place to consider those things. And I remember for many, many years, I had this deeply intensive process around it where it was making mantras for the year of how I want to feel. It was creating a vision board. It was writing out the list of goals. It was narrating the goals into a story. So it felt like I could live into the felt experience of how this all plays together and how it integrates rather than feeling so bucketed into list format by category. And 
that served a purpose for some time for me. And in many ways, it, quote, worked, Mm -hmm. meaning I achieved a lot of those things. In some cases, I felt those things and others I didn't. But I made a major left turn at some point many years ago where I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't want to be that specific about the things that I want. I do want to be specific about how I want to feel. And so I stuck to doing the mantras where I would pick three or so words and say, this is my guideposts for the next however long, because this can also shift and change too. And I'm not going to marry myself to that. And that was really confuddling for people, especially as a coach, Mm -hmm. where people were like, wait, you don't know exactly the 10 things you want to do and exactly by when. And I was like, yes and no. Because for me, I'm like, when I know how I want to feel and I'm creating that inner environment that we've been talking about, things show up. And I also know like what exists. I can tell like this feels worth pursuing. This doesn't. This is something that's neutral. I can just kind of keep sitting with it or being however about it. But it's served me so much better, at least at this stage over the last 10 years or so that I've been practicing this way, because it also allows for more awe and more serendipity and more surprise in the best way where to your point, it's like, I could do what I used to do, which is white knuckle everything, force it into existence, say, well, I said I'm doing it and I'm going to do it. And I said, I was going to do it. So I'm never going to quit it. I'm going to commit to it. And I kind of created my own shitty situations time and again, where I was like, well, great. Now I can check it off. But that was really shitty getting there. That was really shitty continuing to do it because, but I said I would. And I don't let myself down and I'm a person of my word. And I think that's where it's tough that everything lives in this state of gray where I can be a person of my word and I can change my mind. And that also I'm answering to myself. So why am I making it that hard in the first place? But when I back it out and I'm like, great, I did the thing, but I said I wanted peace or I said I wanted abundance or I said I wanted freedom or whatever the mantras would have been at the time. And I look back and I'm like, how often did I really feel that when I was in such hot pursuit of this steadfast, focused, white knuckled thing versus when I go into a year and I'm like, okay, I want to feel those things. Does this align with that? Nope. No, thank you. Does that align with it? Nope. No, thank you. And obviously it's not always that straightforward, but that barometer was so different than being like, let me claw my way to something and hope the byproduct is the feeling. Because this is where I think your point about people leaving at the tops of their careers is the point that happens over and over. They're like, I thought this was going to make me feel fulfilled. I thought it was going to make me feel satisfied. I thought it would make me feel important. I thought I would feel joyful. And they're like, I didn't feel any of those things. But everyone else thought it looked great. Mm -hmm. What was the cost to me? Mm -hmm. And then they're like, I'm willing to throw it all away because now I realize that the pursuit of whatever I was chasing can look so different and it can be big and, you know, something that the world sees and celebrates, or it could be very private and more simple. There isn't a prescription for that. That can look like a lot of things, but that was a huge shift for me in that recognition of follow the feeling, follow the energy of that, follow the value system around that. And I was amazed and in many cases early on surprised at how things would find me that would satisfy those things. And in many cases, I would have never said yes to or never even had the opportunity for or had the awareness that it was even in my orbit if I was 
only willing to focus on the list of things that I had set out for. How do you know the difference between, you know, we talk about like not white knuckling things. So if you're not white knuckling things, how do you know when you've shown up and done your best? I'm asking from someone who's like a hot and cold. <laughs> asking for a friend. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, I don't know if like who uh, who's listening is familiar with human design, but that was an interesting paradigm. If you've never heard of it, just go look it up online and you can get a free profile. <laughs> but it's interesting because the way I was socialized and how I succeeded on paper was so out of whack with what this protocol told me was my actual authentic wiring And so the first part of how I showed up was I could bulldoze the shit out of anything. And I could be like, the destination is point A. I'm going to bulldoze my way there, come hell or high water, and it's going to happen. And it always did. And so I, quote, always succeeded. I always achieved. I always, and I'm saying all this air quotes. Because the path to get there wasn't necessarily feeling aligned or feeling good or, you know, great for the the bystanders Mm -hmm. or myself. Versus when I studied that, it almost gave me language or like a little bit of permission to be like, oh, that is more what feels good for you. But you were taught you have to be the leader and the leader is in the front of the leader is pushing or pulling when actually as an adult, I realized leaders often are standing in the wings. They're often in the back, like they're trusting and entrusting others to shine and to let things happen or they're leading quietly and confidently. I think a lot about a metaphor of a shepherd where A shepherd doesn't lead from the front. An effective shepherd leads from the back. And so it looks like the sheep and the goats are leading them, but they're leading them. They're just doing it completely unforcefully. And it's almost like this energetic connection between the two or a conductor. They're moving their hands, but like they're putting full trust in their orchestra to make the music based on their doing of that. So anyway, all that to say, I just began to recognize that when I sat in a pocket of receiving invitation, and this is just for me because not everyone is wired the same, or recognizing like I don't have to force or make something like succumb to my submission to make it work, that things still worked and that oftentimes they worked better and I felt better about it. And so I think just fundamentally to your question about white knuckling, I always think of this metaphor of a river and if it felt like I was swimming upstream and I was white knuckling the rocks and I was going against that current, that was me forcing and that was me over indexing on effort. And this is where I get bothered by how people misunderstand what I'm about to say, not me specifically, just this conversation more universally of effort versus effortlessness. Mm -hmm. When it feels more effortless to me, when I'm going with the current, when things are clicking, when things are showing up, when you're like, oh, what a coincidence, that thing just happened. That to me is effortless, but it does not mean without effort. To me, that is aligned effort without force. And they can both result in quote success, but the experience of them feels so much different. Yeah, I think it's reminding me of um, I've I've seen this a few different times in my life where people they have a conversation with someone their loved one and it's like oh I want to go to law school but it'll take me four years to get out or I want to do this but it'll take this amount of time and someone always responds well the time's gonna pass anyway like you're gonna turn thirty anyway so you might as well do that um, and so I think 
what you just said about, you know, when you tried not, when you tried to do it with like, not as much like white knuckling or force rather, the things still happened. And I think about that a lot in my life where it's like the thing and we talk about this too, is like, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, and you can choose to use the time how you want. So I, when I, so a lot of times what I have to remind myself when I get into this like survival mode of, I got to hustle, I got to grind, I got to do this. It's like, well, Kim, you can, and then you'll just be tired when you arrive, or you can just, you know, steward the time with rest, with being, with living, with presence and be well rested when you arrive so you can do what you're supposed to do. But I think the the current challenge for me is knowing the difference and not going back to that innate like sense of force and survival mode. And that to me happens out of fear because I feel like I have to do this. Like, no, what's like we like we have said before, like what's for you is for you. And my job is to be ready to take hold of what's for me. And again, what that looks like for me, because I'm going to tell you, is sleep and water, <laughs> <laughs> proper nutrition, right? Um, so that I can- Which be, I would argue is for everyone. It's just right. in different ways. <laughs> but I, I'm honest about that. <laughs> A lot of people, you know, there are people who be like, I only need four hours of sleep. Okay, God bless, <laughs> but I can't. Scientifically, that's <laughs> called sleep deprivation. Anything under five hours is called sleep deprivation. I wish- more of us, and including myself, knew that nuance around work and what work what work truly is. And I think that's what I'm I'm also seeing in this mass exodus. And what kind of intrigues me, but more so excites me, is that people are awaking to what the real work is. Right, the real work. And I used to say this when I was um, an executive director. It's like I realized at a certain point, like the the real work of this job is not sending emails, not necessarily meeting with funders, not, you know, doing the things that are quote unquote in the job description. The real work is stewarding the organization. The real work is making sure that my team is taken care of so that they can pour into the, into the students. And so what's really cool is like the people who are having this mass exodus who are leaving these places, they're realizing what the real work is and the real work is self because we are made to be, I believe that we are made to be highly interdependent beings and we are put on this earth to help each other. And we are uniquely created to be of service to one another in different ways. But if we're neglecting ourselves, if we're always trying to be like the next person, if we're trying to be something other than who we are, then not only are we missing out on an opportunity to be of service to others in the way that they need, but we're we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And we rob others of an experience. You mentioned something earlier about how, you know, there's a dual that we have a duality with ourselves. Like we have the light and the dark and, um, oh my gosh, what's the, the Chinese philosopher. Is, Lao Tzu? is that, okay. There's a, a Chinese philosopher that, um, talks about like embracing the darkness. I sent you the video, a video like a few months back. Um, but he talks about embracing like the fullness of who you are and embracing your darkness. And one thing I've realized is a lot of people, um, this is something I've been thinking about this week too, 
is a lot of times we cling and we nurture the parts that we like about ourselves and we kind of shut the door and close the, the, the dark sides or the not so nice parts of ourselves or the parts that we've been told are not good. And the more we nurture the good parts of ourselves, we and close the door on the like not so good parts of ourselves, the not so good parts of ourselves implode. And then you have these moments and then people are like, oh, that's not me. I'm not that person. Well, you are. You just haven't nurtured that side of yourself. And so what happens is that it ruins the integrity of the full person because you need the light and the darkness. Mm -hmm. That darkness is what makes you empathetic. That darkness is what makes you relatable. Well, they don't exist without the existence of the other. Exactly. Well, exactly, right? You can't have dark without light Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And I think taking that time to be with your full self, to allow yourself, your mind to just... You don't have to cling and attach yourself to every thought, but like allow yourself to be that not so nice person inside, not to others, right. but yeah, this is what a lot of people call shadow work, right? Yeah, Where yeah, it's looking exactly. at that side of ourselves that is often in the shadows that we don't want people to see. We don't want to bring it to light both for others or to admit to ourselves. And it's interesting because whenever people ask hypothetical questions of like, could you, or would you do this in this extreme situation? I'm like, to even surmise that I could give you a realistic answer is absurd. Like, you know, in an apocalyptic situation, would you kill that person or, <laughs> or would you die yourself? And it's like no one that's never been in a situation like that could answer that effectively because you will surprise yourself with the parts of yourself that come out. And yeah, it's just like the realistic answer is I'll let you know when I experience that. I have no way of really predicting that. Yeah. And the, th- the thing that keeps coming up for me in this conversation is another part of the journey that I'm in where I'm allowing myself to just, I'm just letting myself go. Um, that keeps coming up for me all the time. And, you know, one thing that I'm learning in this, on this journey of letting go or letting myself go, because that's a whole nother thing. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. Letting myself go is letting myself just being who I am, right? Um, it's like not self-censoring. Not self, yes, not self, being responsible, <laughs> being a kind, totally. loving human being. But I'm glad you said that because I get really annoyed when people are like, I just tell the truth. So I'm just yeah. going to say everything. And you're like, that's irresponsible. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just allowing my, and I'll give you an example of what that means and what part of that work is. So I am the type of person, I don't necessarily think about hypotheticals too much, but I am always preparing for the worst event that could happen. Like in my everyday life, I'm like, how would, how would, yes, exactly. (laughs) How will I handle this event, this particular thing that happens? And that's, you know, they say it's your brain's way of protecting yourself, but it's not completely helpful. And so what I've had to start doing is interrupt that train of thought, that catastrophizing, I think they call it and say like, when that, and it's something that Sheldon says to me a lot too, is like, when that time comes, I'll just respond with, in the way that I am. And it goes back to being specific, right? We can't necessarily be specific if we don't, with the knowledge that we don't have. So it doesn't help me to plan for a catastrophe and say, here's what, how I'm going to respond to that. If I haven't had an if I haven't had the knowledge the the frame of reference the experience and who knows like what something could happen 
to me tomorrow that will give me the knowledge, experience and skill to respond to a catastrophe. Next right. Week. And even taking it to like a day to day level, that happens all the time, right? Where you're like, wow, if that thing had shown up 48 hours ago, I wouldn't have had that experience, that knowledge, like that thing just showed up. And, you know, you're talking about it from obviously like an end of an extreme spectrum here. But how many times can we each be honest with ourselves and be like, you know, I was in that interview and someone asked me that question, like, oh my God, I just heard about that. Or I just learned that. Or, you know, something happens and you're like, I literally wouldn't have been prepared for that had that other thing not just had happened. Yeah. And I think that's another thing. I, I'm in a space where I'm not preparing or maybe I'm changing what preparation looks like for me. So these days preparation looks like, you know, prayer, meditation, exercise, nutrition, water, reading. But whereas for some people, preparation is like, oh, I have this big meeting. Let me study this company. Let me study this thing. Let me, I want to know all these things. And sometimes what we do is we over-prepare so we don't leave margin for anything mm-hmm. to flow. And you kind of over-prescribe or you, you come in with too much energy mm-hmm. and you're not responsive to the energy in the room. And I remember so many times having to like coach team members and things like, hey, don't over-prepare for this. It's nice to do some research and knowledge, but you want to leave room to respond respond to the time and to respond to the moment. And I think that's why, again, going back to like sitting with yourself and spending time with yourself and getting to know yourself is important because you want to make sure that you're able to respond to life in real time. But in order to do that, it's kind of like, you know, you got to go through fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 11th, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade first. But, you know, in order to do that, you have to be present in the moment. You have to like, notice the birds chirping. You have to notice like the little worm crawling, you know, so you know what you're responding to. But I think that's another, that's another byproduct of society and the generation that we're in is, you know, everybody wants to be the best. Everybody wants to be the, know the most. Everybody wants to have the most information in the room. Everybody wants to be the well actually person and they're not leaving enough room to respond to you know, what's actually happening in the world and time in the room. Which takes trust. Absolutely. So we've covered a lot of ground. I'm curious, as you reflect on what we've discussed, what's sort of your synthesis or your personal biggest takeaway? It's interesting because as we've been talking, I've been looking at this book on your bookshelf called Flow. And as always, when I come to you full of thoughts, feelings, that are all over the place in my web, my Charlotte's web web of a brain. Um, you're able to give language, give names, um, but also affirm me in this like space that I'm in, this soup that I'm in whenever I'm in transition. And I think like the biggest takeaway from me is like, just flow, just go. And there's a literal sign in front of you this entire time waving a bright blue book spine at you to say that. So thank you. As I release a single tear. I mean, you literally <laughs> release it. <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> hey, it's that time. <laughs> <laughs> With that, it is that time for us to go. So thanks, Kim. <laughs> thanks, friend. We'll Bye. See, we'll see you all next time. <laughs>